Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Diana Dini. And this is Greg Hutchins. Normally I'm with Fred, but now I've got a new boss, Diana. (laughs) I'm not the boss. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, you are. (laughs) <laughs> is that because i introduced this episode uh because let's see why um <laughs> no don't answer <laughs> you, you, you introduced it you uh, scheduled the zoom meeting uh you know <laughs> you're managing everything including me <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of management i know that you're really well versed in enterprise risk management And I know a lot of listeners are engineers, reliability engineers that do risk management at the product level, but I really wanted to get your insights and share your insights about how those two things relate, how enterprise risk management and reliability product risk management how they how they relate, why maybe reliability engineers should look up at the business structure <laughs> and the benefit of doing so. This is going to be a 20-part episode topic. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, Where do you start? <laughs> yeah, well, let so, me start. Mm-hmm. I just finished a talk for Fred on um, context is worth or understanding context is worth 20 IQ or EQ points. So it might be uh, worthwhile to just sort of tee it off a little bit with a little history. Would that be helpful? Yeah. And EQ, you mean by emotional intelligence, right? Absolutely. And IQ, (laughs) you know, more sort of mathematical, geeky engineering stuff. So a little context. Um, I've been involved with quality starting up uh, programs, uh, quality programs, since the mid-80s. I set up, so I was a director for a large company of quality started the quality program using milq 9858 which was a predecessor to iso 9001 in 87 got into 9001 and 87 was a pivotal year for quality why because we had three really big events in quality we had iso 9001 we had the malcolm baldridge award which was the national quality award mm-hmm. and then finally we had six sigma coming out of uh, uh golly 3m so that was a really pivotal year and that's when i got involved with quality on my own as a consultant and wrote a bunch of books probably the best-selling book in the 90s on 9001 so you were like uh in the thick of it as all this stuff was happening Uh, big changes absolutely absolutely and uh you know asq and quality went from uh, you know, sort of this very uh, geeky little topic to become the topic in a lot of companies where they set up Six Sigma programs and ISO programs and quality programs. And the function went from an engineering function to a to a, uh, a manager, senior manager, director, and even a VP. There were CQOs running around the organization, chief quality officers. And those were great times, high times, as they used to say, you know, in quality. 
you know, now, now, now this was, uh, this is a little bit different than the financial quality sector. Was this all coming into play at, at once or was the financial quality stuff a little bit later, like a decade later? Uh, actually a, a little bit. Yeah. And we can talk about that. So I rode the quality thing during the nineties, made a lot of money, expanded my company. And those were good times. And of course, 9,000 was really running, you know, every company and every supplier wanted to do uh, 9,001. So 2000 was a pivotal year. Now in ISO, they update the standards every seven years. And in uh, 2000, they added process management to the standard. Now we think that process and quality is, or and reliability has been around for 50 years. Actually, it's been around since about 2000. And what happened is US registrations, actually in North America from about 2000, 2004, dropped about 40%. And that to me was the message. Yeah, I mean- and th This is registrations for people to get certified to be ISO com compliant, right? Companies to become ISO 9001 compliant, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, companies didn't want to go into process. They didn't understand process. I mean, you and I, of course, to us, process is in our, is in our blood. <laughs> I know. It's almost terrible <laughs> how it seeps into everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially, especially when it. you have kids, you know, and you're explaining something like their mom, their mom goes again <laughs> with her oh, processes. Yeah. I, I've, got yeah. A, <laughs> I've got a daughter, and everything is process oriented. Um, <laughs> but it's so, a good thing. Yeah. And of course, I had to pivot because as I could see the handwriting on the wall around 2000 that quality was changing. And by the way, ASQ probably had the highest number of members around 1996. But around 2000, membership started slipping. And I don't want to be behind the curve. I want to be in front of the curve. So I started out there evangelizing that the future quality is going to be risk. That's my tagline. Everybody mm -hmm. knows me on that. And unfortunately, I was evangelizing to a church where nobody showed up. <laughs> I mean, literally. And, uh, you know, uh, basically, I was trying to say we needed to jump on another bandwagon as quality professionals. Why? Because a lot of companies at that time, again, it was about 2000, started taking their CQOs, chief quality officers, and pushing that position down to a director level. Yeah, I kind of remember that. Mm -hmm. It was tough times. And the second thing is my billables went down over a five-year period. I mean, I can sort of talk about how much money I was making, but I'd rather not. But basically... Half of my business disappeared. My billables per hour went down, and the number of hours and people that we had went down. So what I did is I said, okay, let's brand come up with a brand new idea. And I trademarked the term future quality colon is risk. And now it's an incontestable trademark. And we use that as our as our lead, you know, as the point of the spear of what we do. 
And the basic, and by the way, it's applicable now. Why? Because as engineers, especially with AI and AI systems being so smart, it's not what we know anymore. It's the decisions we make. Yeah. It's the quality of the decisions. And that's really different because 10, 20 years ago, as engineers, we knew the standards. We knew the, uh, you know, we're both mechanicals. We basically knew the codes. We, you know, we knew everything, the piping codes or whatever. Our specialized knowledge distinguished us. You know, that was our value add. But now our smartphone, chat GPT, push a button, boom. It comes up with not only the data, standard, the specs, but it comes out with very detailed instructions as to how to implement stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're doing coding like we are these days, the code that it generates is almost is perfect code. You know, we have to maybe change some of the variables, the arrays, but basically it's very good code. So what differentiates us as reliability engineers is the quality of our decisions. And the difference is instead of looking at as mechanicals or electricals or chemicals, instead of looking at, let's talk mechanical, instead of looking at the component and then sub-assembly, assembly and product, we need to look at how the product is fitting into the overall process stream. And we have to look at the throughput and how much money it's making. It takes a different point of view. Now you're not you're not talking process stream as in making the product, but you're talking about business system process streams. I well, I guess it would be both, wouldn't it? Absolutely, Diana, both. Because we have to actually look at holistically, you know, change our context from the knot hole in the tree, <laughs> you know, which would be the component level to, you know, if it's a knot hole in the branch, we have to look at the branch, the trunk, the tree, and the forest. We have to look at the system. And that's where our value add is. Now, AI is not there yet, but within 10, 20 years, it probably will be. <laughs> well, now, you know, you mentioned something uh, too about decision making. Yep. And um, I, <laughs> I, att I attend conferences and, and look at ideas. And I remember um, sitting in a, in a conference where it was a quality engineer uh -huh. that was trying to coach uh, the C-suite executives about the kind of metrics that they should be following, <laughs> that they were using a red light, green light to, you know, just get a snapshot. Hey, are we good this week <laughs> or are we bad this week? Instead of looking at trends over time uh, as an example. So a lot of reliability and quality tools, there, some people, I think there's an expectation that you're going to use this tool and it's going to spit out an answer like a math equation, which isn't the case. You're using a tool to gather information and look at information in a different way, maybe using different criteria or getting different viewpoints and perspectives from other people on your team. Mm -hmm. And then you still have to look at it and use your head <laughs> and make a decision based on what you're seeing. It's not going to give you the answer, but it 
helps to bring together the information so that you still can make make an informed decision. So even though AI is spitting out the how-tos and the answers, mm-hmm. with any particular problem, it's going to have its own nuances and um, and difficulties that humans are going to have to make decisions with. And I think that could be a future power of quality and reliability engineers. What, what do you think? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, what these systems, you know, the, the AI or whatever, the, the tools we use are great, but the tools are have to be applied carefully with the right assumptions, with the right context. No, that's true too. Yeah. You know, with the right assumptions. And we have to sort of look at the problem at different levels of the organization, as well as from different contexts. You know, how's it going to be used by whom, at what time, at what conditions, right? And of course, nowadays, whether we're going to be in Europe, Asia, US, or whatever, because everybody seems to have new requirements here and new laws. Uh, Regarding AI stuff? Whether it's AI or even the product. um, Yeah. It's interesting. Almost every product these days, mechanical product, has a software component to it. That software component has a critical piece that is cyber sensitive. That cyber sensitive piece will have an AI component attached to it. You know, we just, you know, it's the old joke, you know, a car has got a mechanical engine and four wheels on it. Now, some cars have a hundred million lines of code and they're really computers on four wheels. <laughs> you know, yeah. and the engine is electrical. <laughs> that really frustrates my dad because he, <laughs> he he's a tool, a journeyman tool die maker. He had his own business, but we were a family of do-it-yourselfers. Uh-huh. He, he would work on the cars, all, you know, change. he made his daughters change the tires and change the oil. <laughs> we would get in there elbow deep and doing, but now it is, um, it's too complicated. There's too many lines of code and too many electrical integrations that, um, you know, he, he even feels now he's got to take his car to the dealership so they can hook it up to the computer so they can Mm -hmm. get the diagnosis from it. That's exactly right. So back to the, back to the quality reliability engineers, we've got the statistics, we've got the process. Now we have to basically make effective decisions. And I think the decisions we make and the training we have really places us really comfortably for the future. If we can basically go from tools orientation to a data orientation, to a user orientation, to a smart decision orientation. Mm. That's like going from the not hole in the tree to looking at the forest, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. So how how would um if somebody is I don't know they're they're working as a reliability engineer mm-hmm. they're assigned to a, a product line they're working on a product mm-hmm. and it is one of those pieces of equipment that's like you described it gets integrated it's it's a mechanical but it's got an electrical component 
And then electrical has some software and that software is attached to AI. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What uh, can reliability engineers do to help them do their jobs better when it comes to looking at the forest through the trees? Is it taking it one step at a time, like you described? Instead of going from tools, look at data, and then from the data, look at the user. And up to the business level, is it a stepwise approach that seems to work for people? Or is it um, or is it something else? I think it's going to be context sensitive. Um, but we have to look at the bigger picture and we have to be a lot smarter. I think part of it, and I'm I'm seeing that with a lot of my friends who are engineers, um, they went to school, they got a master's degree, they're very smart, but they didn't re-educate. You know, the old expression that I used maybe 20 years ago is tires used to be retreaded. <laughs> yeah. Now we simply dispose of tires. But it's really what I the expression I use would be retread education. Nowadays, I think that the half-life of education, uh, technical education, is maybe two to four years. Yeah. So what does that mean? Let's say that you're graduating from a good school, uh, Berkeley, CMU, Cornell, in engineering, mechanical. And four years go by, Diana, the half-life of knowledge means that the knowledge doubled in the four years, right? For your area of mechanical engineering. And then four years more. So you graduated 22, now you're 30. Knowledge in your field is basically quadrupled. What happens is if hypothetically you didn't do any type of re-education, are you still adding value? Are you still, you know, <laughs> are you still, you know, able to add value to your career and to the company or to yourself? That's what's happening. Knowledge is happening so quickly that most of us have to retread all the time. I mean, in my case, <laughs> I used to be a mechanical. I started out as mechanical, went to oil and gas, went to supply management, went into quality, went into writing books, and now we're a software shop. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and interestingly, we use AI in our software. And we're using 10x. Let me say that again. If we had to hard code individual, you know, if we had to hard code every function in our software, it would take X amount of time. We use low code, no code, and ChatGPT. And we're doing it at 10x to 15x faster. Should I say that again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's that's, surprising. That's, that's crazy scary. It is absolutely stunningly crazy scary. And, um, you know, it's um, it's not perfect, but good is good enough. And it's got the functionality, the look and feel, what we call UI, UX, that works. And that's going to happen, by the way. And I'm talking right now software, but I think it's going to happen in every engineering domain. This AI revolution is going to cause us to really rethink what we do and how we do it. So what's our differentiator? The quality of our decision-making, I think, at least for the next 10 years until everything is autonomous, but at least we've got 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so just staying abreast of 
what is happening and what people are using and well, honestly, how things are done. Um, just keeping track of that, even outside of your industry. Well, I guess, especially inside your own industry, but then it's definitely worth taking a look at what other industries are doing, because there's also a lot of cross-pollinating ideas going on that really accelerate the rate of the kind of things that you're talking about, too. Uh, we were early adopters. Again, I knew software going back to Fortran. Uh, I got into a... <laughs> Me I, too. <laughs> yeah. Remember where we had a whole bunch of cars that we'd... St- <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, I was I'm a little the, bit older than you are. Yeah, I was at the Pascal, uh, you know, uh, but, but it, there was some Fortran, but no cards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I go back to the Fortran card days. And then basically I used Lisp, which was sort of a early AI language. And then now I'm using, uh, you know, all these new tools and low code and literally 10 to 15 times bigger faster efficiency again it's clunky code it's it's not clean code uh it's sort of fat but it works and i'm just stunned absolutely stunned so what does that mean uh if you're a mechanical engineer uh learn no code or some um, uh, soft code, uh, you know, low code or no code programming. If you're uh, doing uh, business proposals, use ChatGPT or BARD. BARD is the uh, Google equivalent. Uh, if you're doing drawing, use um, uh, uh, DALI or something like that. Um, it's stunning. In our book that you're kind enough to evaluate, if you notice, there were some drawings in there. Mm-hmm. We did, did you do those, Greg? We used Dali, <laughs> and we basically did five thousand drawings through Dali. D a l l dash e. Right. <laughs> you know, sort of a eponymous of Dali, the 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 guy who did the dripping clock, right? You know, uh, artist. But um, yeah, we selected 150 drawings out of 5,000. And all of it was AI generated. And that's what's nice about uh, this year is that a lot of this is available for us to get more familiar with and try to use. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, um, (laughs) um, we just simply recommend to people, everybody, get familiar with these products out there that are just simply changing, if not revolutionizing what we do. They're going to be huge amount of opportunities. And maybe one of these uh, podcasts, we can talk about these opportunities because I give a lot of talks on AI, but uh, it's uh, not, but, and um, it is just simply fun, if nothing else, just to see what's going on, you know? So, you know, I, you know, the two takeaways, I think, from my end would be the half-life of knowledge for our engineering folks is changing. So the half-life is the number of years where the knowledge and the discipline doubles. It used to be, you know, knowledge would double in mechanical engineering maybe 10, 20 years. Now it's doubling every four to five years, probably. 
in computer science, it's doubling every two years, maybe even year and a half. You know, think of it as, <laughs> you know, if that's the case and we want to stay employable and add value, we really need to keep up. And our differentiator, at least for the time being, is going to be the quality of our decision making. Yes. That's the from me. I, I wanted to bring it back to that, too, is um, just the, the quality of the decision making, which which has to. I mean, they're sort of intertwined. It's part of your decision-making is understanding the assumptions that went into it, which you, you mentioned earlier. And a lot of these new, new tools, if they're being used, they might have assumptions that we may not never had to deal with before. So it's good to become familiar with these new tools and techniques and things that are out there for us to be able to do our work and to differentiate and add life and personal value to ourselves to our employer and to our families yeah that's a nice way to nice thought to end up on the episode uh, well it's upbeat i hope <laughs> <laughs> it's a doom and doom and gloom <laughs> yes there's enough doom and gloom around all this stuff um it's it's nice to end on a good note which I think, which I think you did. Okay. Well, if you have any comments about um, your state of work when it has to do with these new technologies, and if you're doing things with AI, if you have any comments or questions, please let us know. Share share with us. Someone gets the messages, and we'll get back to you. It's ascendoreliability.com/go slash S-O-R, which is short for the title of this podcast, Speaking of Reliability. <laughs> well, Greg, thanks for the talk on uh, enterprise risk management and reliability engineering and the future of work. Thank you, boss. I appreciate it. Your time. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.